9, 51 through 62. So starting in verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one puts a hand to the plow and looks back. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us today, Lord. We pray that your spirit who knows all hearts would speak to each and every single heart that is here today. Lord, show us our sin. Show us your holiness. Show us the worth that is in Christ Jesus and mold and draw our hearts so that we would be willing to follow you, whatever the cost. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, who here uh, has ever said, there is no way I'm ever going to drive a minivan? Anybody ever been in that boat? All right. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, for a number of years, uh, we thought that, and, but we drove a Honda Odyssey eventually. And let me just say, don't knock it until you try it. Uh, we were reluctant to buy a minivan because of you know, all the connotations that come with it, and we were sure that we would end up with something like a Honda Pilot, because that was much cooler. But we figured, let's at least give the minivan a try so that we can say we tried it and then we knew it wasn't for us. But before we even left the parking space at the dealership, we were convinced that the minivan was the right vehicle. It was something about how the car seats fit perfectly into each little slot and how the kids could open the doors on their own without doing damage to all the cars next to us. And then we discovered that you could actually close the door from the driver's seat by just pushing a little button because kids fight to open the door of the minivan or the, you know, whatever car they're in, but they refuse to close the door for some reason. And so you always have to hop out, go around and close it yourself. And for a vehicle that moves eight people and has a ton of cargo space, I really think it's one of the best vehicles out there. But then as our kids got older, uh, our ideas of, you know, what the adventures we want to take started to change. And so a year or two ago, we started thinking, maybe it's time to think about a new car. And we decided that uh, a Suburban was probably, you know, the best car for this next stage of life. And one of the main reasons was it is able to go off road and it can tow things. And I discovered that my wife likes camping a lot more if it's in a trailer than if it's in a tent. And so we decided that was a, uh, an investment 
worth making. But Suburbans were very expensive, especially when we wanted to buy a diesel one, which they only started making the last couple years. And we had to count the cost. We hadn't had a car payment in many years, and that was kind of nice. And now we were gonna take on a really big car payment. Is it worth it? Will it would it be worth it from what we would gain from what we're spending each month? Right? And I'm sure every one of you has been in a similar situation where you're wrestling with, is buying this thing, is doing this thing going to be worth it? Whether it's moving to a new place, taking a new job, buying a car, buying a house, it's going to be costly, and will it be worth it in the end? And there's many people who kind of blindly go into something like that, not counting the cost. And suddenly you're stuck, or you realize you miscalculated, or now you're full of regret because of this thing that you did that you can't undo. And in our passage, we see something similar. We see kind of this surprising side of Jesus who's not out recruiting people. Oh, hey, come with me. It's going to be great. But what is he doing? He's actively turning people away. He's telling them, I don't think you realize how hard it is to be a Christian. He's challenging their assumptions of how easy it's going to be to follow Jesus. And what I want us to see this morning is simply that following Jesus is costly. It's going to be tough. Following Jesus is costly. And we're going to look at it in three ways. Costly forgiveness, naive expectations, and then one priority. So costly forgiveness. Verse 51 in the book of Luke marks a, a big transition in the book. Uh, this is where Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem. So for much of Jesus' ministry, he's been in the region around the Sea of Galilee, which is up north. But now he's decided to head to Jerusalem. And his journey to Jerusalem marks the journey to his death. Things have been heating up with the religious authorities, particularly in Jerusalem. And so Jesus has largely avoided that city because he had a sense that once he goes there, he's not getting out of there. But now it's time for him to enter the lion's den. And so he begins that journey from the Galilean region up north, and he starts walking south to Jerusalem. In many of the stories and parables in this section of the book of Luke that we'll be looking over the next month or so are unique to the book of Luke. It's, it's one of the special things about this book. And on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus travels through the region of Samaria. Now, maybe if you're familiar with the Bible, you've heard about some of the disagreements or tensions between the Samaritans and the Jews. And maybe you've heard them referred to as kind of like half-blooded uh, children of the Jews or something like that. But that division really goes back some 1,000 years before Jesus to when the kingdom of Israel was divided into a northern and southern kingdom. And one of the things that happened when that division occurred was Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom, and that was where the temple was and where people were to worship. But Jeroboam, the new king of the northern kingdom, said, well, I don't want all of my people walking down to the southern kingdom to worship there. So I'm going to make some sites where people can go to worship in the northern kingdom so they don't have to you know, do business down with those people in the south. So he created these worship sites. And that division set off an ever-growing division between the Samaritans, which came out of the northern kingdom, and the Jews, which largely came out of the southern kingdom. And it only expanded over the centuries. And so Jews often avoided traveling through Samaria the northern kingdom region. 
And what they would do is they would cross the Jordan River and kind of take this large circuitous route to get down to Jerusalem. It would kind of be like if you needed to go to Provo, but you went to Provo via Park City and then down Heber and down Provo Canyon it, because you wanted to avoid Lehi. You couldn't stand the traffic in Lehi or whatever it is, right? That is what the Jews would often do, take this circuitous route. But Jesus would often just take the direct route, going right through Samaria. But as you can imagine, because of these centuries-old conflicts, Jews weren't always treated well when they were going through Samaria, particularly, as we see in our passage, when they're headed to Jerusalem, right? Because that's one of the early divisions is you don't need to go down to Jerusalem to worship. You can just worship here in one of these places of worship. And so travelers to Jerusalem were particularly discriminated against when they're going through Samaria. And that trip that Jesus is on, it's going to take him probably three to four days of walking. And back then, travelers often relied on the hospitality of maybe distant family or friends or just even strangers in the town where they were going to stay. Most houses of that time had a guest room built onto the second story of the house where travelers throughout the town could come and stay a night as they work their way down to wherever they're headed. And there was a very strong culture of hospitality. And because Jesus had a larger than average traveling party, he sent some people on ahead to try to arrange rooms for all of his disciples and any other people traveling with him. But this advance party quickly runs into trouble. People aren't welcoming them because they're headed to Jerusalem. Remember that fight about where to worship, right? Are our worship sites not good enough for you? Why do you need to go down to Jerusalem? And imagine how tough this would be, right? It's like you are on a long road trip and you get to your destination only to discover that your hotel reservations have been canceled and there's no vacancy. Immediately your stress level goes up. Where are we going to stay? It's actually worse than that, right? Because there was room for them in this town, but they were being discriminated against. They're essentially being told, oh, well, we don't give rooms to people like you especially if you're headed to Jerusalem. And that's frustrating enough today. Now imagine if you don't have a car where you can just drive to the next town, but you have to walk. How discouraging is that? And if you've ever been on a long road trip and discover that something got messed up with your reservations for where you're going to stay, you don't react well, do you? There's not a lot of grace left in your tank. And we see that with James and John's reaction. Shall we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? James and John were given a nickname, the Sons of Thunder, early on by Jesus in his ministry. And here they're living up to that nickname. But let's not be too harsh with them. They were probably a bit hangry after traveling all day, and they just wanted a place to sleep and didn't like the idea of having to go walk down the road to the next village. But their idea here isn't entirely unprecedented. There's a story in the Old Testament with Elijah, one of the prophets, and he used something similar as a test to prove whether he's a true prophet of God or not. He says to these other people, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. But what does Jesus do in reaction? He rebukes these disciples and they just continue to walk to the next village. This is really amazing, right? Here Jesus is being discriminated against. His people are being discriminated against. And he doesn't roll up his sleeves and say, no, guys, I've got this. I'm going to deal with it. 
And he doesn't go on his phone and leave a one-star review and say how horrible they are. He doesn't go on Twitter to blast them. He doesn't even tell his disciples, you know what, you're right to be angry. What they did was wrong, but we need to keep going. No, the only judgment that we see Jesus has here is for his two disciples. And they were the ones that were just reacting to being sinned against. They're wanting to fight fire with fire. They're on one hand sticking up for Jesus, they think, defending his honor. And this shows us the first thing that's costly about following Christ. To follow Jesus means you need to be willing to forgive. Even when it's humiliating, even when you didn't do anything wrong, even when it's costly to you, that we can never, as Christians, stoop to the same level of those who mistreat us or hate us or discriminate against us. Right? What should Christians do when we find ourselves being discriminated against in whatever way? Well, I think our passage shows us that in general we're called to forgive and to keep on walking. Now there's times when we stand up for injustice. There's, if there's unjust laws, there's ways that we can work to try to change these things, right? It doesn't just mean we don't do anything about it, but so often that's not what we're really doing when we get upset when someone mistreats us, right? We're doing the equivalent of what the sons of thunder wanna do here and fight some fire with fire. They hurt me, I'm gonna hurt them. They humiliated me, I'm gonna hold a grudge against them. But Christians need to be known for our forgiveness. And it's not just of forgiveness of the people that we like. I mean, it's relatively easy to forgive someone that you like. But forgiveness of our enemies. Forgiveness of people who hate us, who never ask for it, and frankly, we don't think deserve it. To be a Christian means that when they hate, we show grace. When they discriminate, we forgive. This is part of the cost of following Jesus. That we never take up our arms to fight with the same tactics and ways that the world does. But to show the humility and grace and long-suffering of Jesus. And we see how seriously Jesus takes this because what the Samaritans did here was wrong. And Jesus will call them to account one day. There will be a judgment where all things are made right. And yet, in this moment, the most pressing thing that Jesus feels that he needs to address is not the wrong of those other people, but the disciples and their wrong attitude towards those who had treat, mistreated them. It, it, it appears that Jesus cares a whole lot about how Christians treat those who persecute them. That we look different from how the rest of the world treats people who mistreat them. So how are you treating those who have wronged you? How do you talk about those whom you dis deeply disagree with, who those who are seeking to persecute or discriminate against Christians. The more that you're pressured from the outside, does the more that grace and love abound in your life? Or are you wanting to call down fire? Well, this brings us to our next point, these naive expectations. Jesus and his disciples just 
keep on walking to the next village, looking for a place to stay. And suddenly a man comes up to them and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And this to us sounds like, hey, this is perfect, right? Look, he's excited. He's willing to do anything for Jesus. But Jesus is never deceived by someone's optimistic words at the beginning of their relationship, right? Their first things they say. He knows what's in their heart. He says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It's a striking image. Foxes have dens to go in to rest and for safety after a long night of hunting. Birds have nests that they can bed down in to weather the winter storm. And Jesus is saying, the animals have it better than I do. I don't have a place to call home. I don't have a place of refuge, a bed to call my own that I'm going back to. It seems this person had kind of this naive optimism that wasn't backed by a true conviction. He, he was almost something of a romantic who loved the idea of following Jesus wherever he would go, but he would quickly change his mind once it actually got hard. And some of us are like this. We, we have these optimistic kind of grandiose ideas of these things you want to do for God or how you're going to follow God or you make this decision to, hit, to, to follow Jesus. But you do that when you're on a spiritual high and you don't realize how tough it's going to be. Even though you say you realize it, you don't have that deeper conviction. It, it's kind of like a, a Mr. Beast video that I, I watched not that long ago, which if you don't know who he is, just ask your kids or your grandkids. And it was one where he was giving away a Lamborghini, right? And he had a bunch of people all put, touch the car. And the last person to take his or her hand off the car would get the, win the Lamborghini. And at the beginning, everybody is gung-ho. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay on. I'm never going to you know, let go of the car. I'll be there. And within like an hour, a bunch of people had already left because they decided, ah, it's not worth it. I don't really need the car that much. And how many of us would have these big plans to follow Jesus because we think it's going to be romantic and fun and exciting. And then you realize so much of it is a slog and it's hard and it's long and it can be lonely. And you think, I don't know if this is going to be worth it. It's maybe kind of like, you know, when you're young and in love and you have these romantic ideas of, you know, being, you know, spending your life with someone and say, we might be poor, but we're in love and we have each other. And then you realize, well, love doesn't heat very much of the house and, and there's other needs that we have in life. Or you discover that Jesus isn't asking you to do the things that you were prepared to do for him or that you dreamed about doing for him but he's asking you to suffer in ways and do things that you really don't want to do for him. And it's like Jesus has this way of knowing the exact pain points that you're protecting in your life. He knows those security blankets that you're holding on to. And you say, but oh, I have all this stuff, Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm not worried about all that. I want that thing you're holding on to. And he has this marvelously frustrating way of saying, will you follow me in those ways, will you give up that thing for me? Because that's what you really value. And this brings us into our third point, one priority. Jesus sees another man walking on the road and he simply tells him, follow me. And Jesus here, I think, as we're going to see in the next section, is really building more disciples to go and multiply the ministry. But this man replies, well, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus' reply seems kind of heartless. Let the dead bury their own dead. But you must go proclaim the kingdom of God. 
And we've wrestled with this. Does Jesus really mean like you can't go bury your, your father? Like what is he getting at? And there's a few different interpretations here. One is it's, it's possible that the, the man is, is saying that his father is near death. And he's saying, my father's coming to the end of his life. Let me take care of him. And then once he's dead, I can go and follow you. But I have these commitments back home. And, and certainly God calls us to honor our father and mother. And taking care of them in the, their old age is one of the ways we do that. Another option or interpretation is that this man is near, his, his father is near death. And he knows that his father wouldn't approve of him leaving everything to go and follow Jesus. And he's worried about that family disapproval. And so he's saying, once my father's dead, then I don't have to worry about him disapproving of me, and then I can follow you. Perhaps his father had dreams for what his son was going to do, or some other profession. Maybe his father was Samaritan, and so it would certainly bring shame to the family to see his son running around with a Jew named Jesus, especially when he realized that following Jesus wasn't going to be good for his pocketbook. And it could also simply mean that Jesus is saying that when I call you to go and proclaim the kingdom, right? It's not necessarily, I don't think, a a particular call for every single person, but he's saying when I call you to go, you need to make that your first priority and to go to the things that I'm calling you to. Another man is nearby and he hears this and he kind of pipes up, well, let me see if I can, you know, get past Jesus. He says, I'll follow you. Let me just first say goodbye to my family. Again, this doesn't seem unreasonable. We have a story in the Old Testament where the prophet Elijah, he calls his, his successor Elisha. And the way he does it is he's walking uh, down the road and he throws his cloak on Elisha as a way of saying, my ministry is now passed on to you. And Elisha says that, let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye, and then I will come with you. And Elijah goes and says, yeah, that's fine to do that. What does Jesus say? No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So you can't have divided priorities. Now, if we go back to Elisha, I think we understand what Jesus is saying. When Elisha said goodbye to his parents, he was plowing with 12 oxen. And yet when he's called into the ministry, what's he do? He takes those 12 oxen, he slaughters them to post a big going away party for all of his family. And then he, he goes and follows Elijah. He doesn't look back. He burns the ancient tractors. And I think that is what Jesus is getting at. To follow him in service of the kingdom of God means you can't be divided in your loyalties, but you're called to be all in. You can't be following Jesus, but kind of still living a double life on the side or always thinking what your life could have been if you just didn't give so, up so much for Jesus. So let's kind of bring all these things together. Jesus is showing that following him is tough, or it's costly. And it's costly in a few ways. One, he requires us to have radical forgiveness. That to follow Jesus means people will malign you, and you, aren't, you can't get back at them, but, but must extend grace and forgiveness. It's also costly in that following Jesus might put you at odds with others, maybe even people in your own family, your friends. And Jesus says, but am I worth it? And you can't be following Jesus 
and kind of continually looking back to these other people say, well, man, I wish, what if my life had turned out like that? What if I hadn't given up these things? To not have divided loyalties. So have you confronted the cost of following Jesus? And what do you think if you were along this road and piped up with these other people? Well, Jesus, I'll follow you. What do you think Jesus would have said to you? It would probably be a little bit scared to find out, right? He knows the depths of our heart. He knows the exact question to unmask those things that you're holding on to and are afraid to let go. Here's maybe one way you can, can get at an answer is what has following Jesus cost you so far? Where have you wrestled with the cost of following Jesus? And with those people who came to Jesus, notice that following him, right, they have these grand ideas, oh, I'll follow you, and then Jesus drives it to very practical things. Day to day in your life, there is a cost to following Jesus. There shouldn't be a day that goes by where your decisions, the way you react, the things you do, isn't changed in some way because you believe Jesus is worth it. Every part of your life needs to be impacted by Jesus. And if it hasn't, or if it isn't, perhaps you're not truly following Jesus. You could be following kind of a, a Jesus lookalike that you've made up in your own mind, one who fits into your life a whole lot easier, where you don't have to give up too much. A Jesus who's only calling you to give up the things you already kind of want to give up, right? I think this is what so much of, a, of us do. We, we have these things in our life we want to change, and you think, oh, maybe Jesus can help me change those things. But the true Jesus, yeah, he might help you with those, but he's going to ask so much more beyond that. And that's the real question is, will you follow him when he's asking you to give up the things you really want? You could be following Jesus in theory, but not in practice. Because Jesus makes clear that if you're going to follow him, it's going to have a cost in your life. Jesus must change your life, so where has he changed you? Has he changed how you speak of people that you don't like? Has he changed how you forgive people instead of always holding on to that grudge? Has he changed your goals with money and how you spend it and allocate it? Have you changed, has he changed the things that you long for? Has he changed how you spend your time? Has he changed your Sundays? Has he changed your career goals? And if you haven't seen him working in these things, it should be a wake-up call that maybe you're not actually following him because there's a cost to follow him. And we shouldn't be surprised at this, not just because of what Jesus is saying here, but we just need to look at his very life. Remember, where is Jesus headed right now? to Jerusalem, to die. Jesus chose this path of suffering, even though on one hand, he didn't have to. He could have had a way easier life up in heaven. He could have you know, had all of his hopes and dreams fulfilled in that heavenly life and never known pain, had the perfect bed, had the best meals, right? had way better housing than foxes and birds and anything he ever experienced down on this earth. But he chose to come down here. And why is that? Well, it's because he loves sinners. He loves sinners like you 
and me, sinners who can't save ourselves and keep messing up and keep choosing the wrong. He loves Samaritans who discriminate against him and don't show him hospitality, but that doesn't stop him from loving people like the Samaritans. When Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head, when he was being mocked, when he was stripped naked and hung on a cross, he didn't retaliate. He didn't say, you don't know who I am. Do you know what I could do to you? No, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. These are the very type of people that I came to save. Jesus died for those people. Jesus gives his perfect record of righteousness to the people who least deserve it. Jesus didn't come to make good people better, as if any of us could actually be good before God, but he came to make dead people alive. And that's hopeful for you when you're down in the pit. That's hopeful for you when you realize how much you've screwed up and how twisted your heart is. But you've got to recognize that you're dead in sin, like all of us. And when you realize how much Jesus loved you when you were unlovely, you'll realize the cost to follow him is worth it. Because there is no one who will love you like that. It's worth sacrificing so much for, for someone who gave you his life, his righteousness, when you were fighting against him, and yet he would not let you go. It's worth following Jesus in all the details of this life because he gives you eternity in another life where you will have missed out on nothing. So will you follow him today? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to follow you, Jesus. Lord, and we're all in some ways can identify with the people here in this passage. Lord, we've all had hateful thoughts and bursts of anger against those who've mistreated us. We've all had romantic ideas of following you, but are secretly holding on to these other things. We've all had mixed priorities. We've all had to follow, wanted to follow you in one hand, but hold on to our old life in the other hand. And Lord, I pray that here in this moment, you would break us from those things, that you would reveal some of the glory of yourself to us, lift up our eyes to behold our God, and to realize that you are worth it. And the cost that we may pay right now will seem so small compared to what we get in you. That you are what we really need and that our best life is actually found when we are fully alive in you. So help us experience that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.